welcome to Shakespeare and Pow, episode 15 on Titus Andronicus. On this podcast, we go through the works of Shakespeare in chronological order, discussing, summarizing, and analyzing his plays, as well as stopping along the way to look at some of Shakespeare's contemporaries and his influences. Last time we did his influence in tragedy Seneca, the big bloody granddaddy, and now we have Shakespeare's most explicit attempt to do a pastiche, his Tarantino-like pastiche of Grindhouse. Here we go. Well, I'm Michael, and this is... Sophie, a very depressed person right now. But that is for other reasons. (laughs) And your relationship with Titus Andronicus. I mean, I had... Okay, so people of the podcast who've watched, sorry, listened to this before. Some of them are watching you, Sophie. Oh, no. My laptop camera, the worst possible angle, worst possible lighting. At least let me get a ring light before you watch me. Come on. But anyway, as most listeners will know by now, our host, our podcast host, has a Shakespeare book club. And through that, we had watched... Titus Andronicus, the movie, starring Alan Cumming as um, Saturninus? I believe I so. Let me check. And no, Sophie, I forced you to watch that entirely separately. Oh, okay. Either way, it's, I was still forced to watch it. And uh, well, this is Titus by the 1999 movie by Julie Taymor. Julie Taymor, probably more. Famous for directing the Broadway adaptation of The Lion King. She has range, that woman. Wow. Well, Anthony Hopkins plays Titus. And, uh, yeah. And then... That was it. I think that's that's really all I I can say. That was the only real connection I had to Titus Andronicus previously. Because this is too awful a play to have in, uh, in schools. Most certainly, and it's not like those things where the sexualness or the violence is hidden behind layers of Shakespearean uh, complicated language that high schoolers won't understand. No, this is right there. It is, if they don't understand one of the atrocities, they'll understand the next atrocity. I will say that your, that sound you just made there is pretty much one of the main comments that people have made over the centuries about this play. I have the Shakespeare Critical Heritage, which is a six-volume, six-five-hundred-page volume collection of Shakespearean criticism from the time Shakespeare wrote up until the 20th century. And it is almost universal that either... People are saying, oh, this is too awful to be Shakespeare's. Or they are saying, well, it is Shakespeare's. Let's not insult him by focusing on it. It is definitely a work that people after Shakespeare's time have tried to distance from him. I can see why that would be the case. So Francis Gentleman says that 
Upon this principle, though in different parts, Titus Andronicus bears strong, nay, evident marks of Shakespeare's pen, yet he has fixed upon such characters and incidents as are totally offensive. Human nature is shown in a most partial and deplorable state. Depraved, as we sometimes find it, it is scarce to be imagined that such an infernal group as is huddled together in this piece could meet in so small a compass. Hence this play must be horrid in representation and is disgustful in perusal. Indeed, it is a matter of great wonder how Shakespeare's humane heart could endure the contemplation of such inhuman actions and events through the course of five acts. Our baby boy Shakespeare, he was too pure to imagine such a work. Yeah, says the reviewer who hadn't fully appreciated that Richard III was first. Though I also think that, I mean, at this point in history, you know, originally you do find, oh, all these people in the 18th century finding this impossible for Shakespeare to have written, too awful for Shakespeare to have written. But then we've we've read Seneca, and so we know this was popular throughout up until the nineteenth century. And why is it so difficult for them to believe that someone might have tried to do Seneca? I mean, I guess like for me, it feels reading Seneca was surprisingly boring. On the note of it being well boring, I, I must the first time, the first few times I read this play years ago. I probably found it boring, but uh, on the since reading Seneca, I found it's come to life for the reason where that there's a podcast called How Did This Get Played, or it's now called Get Played, and they were talking about playing this game called the Atari Masterworks Collection, and that it's not just a collection of Atari games. You play through the Atari games in order, and because you're playing them through an order you find yourself getting shocked by all the innovations the Atari games make. Like, you get, you start off just, like, firing a little gun in a single room, and then you move to a game like Adventure. It's like, oh my god, there are multiple rooms in this video game. This is so futuristic. I found that, having just read Seneca, where there's, every play is just ruminating, ruminating, ruminating on the same atrocity for five acts. Getting to this play, oh, it moves quickly. Oh, it doesn't stop. Oh, there's so much going on in Titus Andronicus. So maybe it's just my mind has been uh, destroyed by reading so much Renaissance and ancient literature. But I did feel that this was a step up in dramatic punch. Yeah. No, I definitely agree on that. Because at least um, at least for Ovid and just anyone else of the more classical um, period, I guess they were more, you know, poetic. So the whole ruminating on a single single scene or a single um, incident, orally and only orally, you have to linger. You know, how did, how did they feel? What was the horror? The depths of the horror. Oh, the humanity. Oh, the tragedy. While on a play, you can just see it in your face. It's right there physically. And it's like, oh, God, oh, no, oh, help. Uh, yeah, it is certainly... I mean, I would say that even Shakespeare does some of the rumination on it. He does some of the... Like, that is one of the things... I, I won't go through most of the excerpts from the Critical Heritage because most of them just say the same thing. But uh, most of them do just admit that Shakespeare has some masterstrokes in this, and I can pretty much identify what they think the masterstrokes are. 
which are the parts where he drops into some lyrical rumination on either a character's psychology or on how the blood on the grass looks like dew or something like that. Uh, yeah, no, um, dew on a lily, I believe the phrase was. Yes. I, there's just one bit from the Critical Heritage that I will just read out because it is a rather interesting argument for why this person, an Elizabeth Griffith in 1775, why she believes that this is Shakespeare's work and not someone else's work. She says, I should suppose this entire piece to be his, and for a very singular reason, uh, because the whole of the fable, as well as the conduct of it, is so very barbarous in every sense of the word that I think, however he might have been tempted to make use of the legend in some hurry or other for his own purpose, he could hardly have adopted it from any other person's composition. We are quick-sighted to the faults of others, though purblind to our own. Besides, he never would have strewn such sweet flowers upon a caputumotum if some child of his had not laid entombed underneath. Where the argument is essentially, look, if some, this can't just be Shakespeare prettying up someone else's work, because if someone else had had this, he would have said, oh, this is awful, get that away from me, I don't want this. It, he would only have prettied it up if it was his own child he was pretty, his own hideous, disgusting child he was pretty. <laughs> if you put it that way. <laughs> Which is a pretty ingenious argument, you have to admit. Yeah, yeah, no, I can. He's like, I need to double down, but I need to make it pretty, or else, or else what was the point? <laughs> And the biography, just situating this in Shakespeare's career and a bit of background about this play. Most of this information comes from Peter Aykroyd, Schoenbaum, Anna Beer, and Jonathan Bate. I'll put their books in the description of this podcast. And Shakespeare's professional background was that he was still struggling a bit for money. This is still the beginning of his career. He's not the old hand at this that he would go on to be. This was in the post-plague years environment of 1592 to 1593, which meant that most of the theatres had shut down. So just like in COVID, a lot of actors and a lot of playwrights not doing very well. So Shakespeare had been on that kick of writing Latin-inspired works like his uh, Rape of Lucrece, his Venus and Adonis, and one imagines that maybe Titus Andronicus was also part of that kick. And also in a later plague year, he did publish Titus Andronicus as a book. Those poems had failed to get him any patronage. He had famously tried to wheedle a patronage out of a possibly homosexual nobleman, but that nobleman wasn't going to give Shakespeare any money. So Shakespeare's still a jobbing writer. A jobbing writer. Everyone starts from somewhere. <laughs> and I, we began this podcast by pointing out that this play throughout history has been sort of uh, malign. People saying, no, no, Shakespeare couldn't have written it. This is so awful. But we do need to stress that in Shakespeare's time, 
this was a very popular play. There is a good, fine, even if you don't think that this is Shakespeare's best play, there is a good financial reason Shakespeare wrote it, and it certainly was in keeping with the tastes of the time. It was just a slightly more bloody version of that genre of revenge comedy, no, revenge tragedies, revenge tragedies of the time, such as Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy. And it was also played multiple times, revived multiple times. He even, during one of the plague years when they decided to start playing plays outside of the city, traveling around, they went to a nobleman's house, uh, Sir John Haddington's house in Rutland, and they performed this play at his own house. So someone demanded this. He said, go on, show me that play. I like that play. And even there's a guy called Francis Mears, and Francis Mears in 1597, so this is relatively early, this is a guy who made a book called Palidis Tamia, which is a collection of, oh, beautiful poetry from our poetic books, from English poetic books, uh, Shakespeare. He includes Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus as one of the things that makes Shakespeare match uh, Seneca. So these... It might have been hated later on, but Titus Andronicus in Shakespeare's own time, it was popular and it was respected. <sighs> and just one last little titbit, a rather fitting titbit. It seems that the first place this play was shown at was a theatre called The Rose, which was built in an area with a lot of brothels. And one of the historians, Schoenbaum, says, a theatre here could hardly fail. Essentially saying, when you have a lot of foot traffic already, then yes, you're going to have a lot of people coming into your play. You know what? That's not wrong. That's not wrong. It feels a little rude uh, to be saying that uh, those of that uh, class or um, of that general inclination slash area would just you know just watch it for watching's sake and you know you need to get yourself burning. worked up before you meet your dam come on act one of titus andronicus we are in ancient imperial rome not an actual historical part of ancient imperial rome this fun house tarantino like version of imperial rome where there is an now a roman succession crisis who will be the next emperor will it be saturninus the firstborn son of the previous emperor bassianus one of saturninus's younger brothers or Will it be Titus Andronicus, beloved of the plebeians, beloved of the people, who is just coming back from a victorious war? Who will it be? Titus is back from a war with the Goths. Lots of his sons dead, killed in battle. And Titus has the people's support on his side. But because Titus is a very patriotic boy, he says no. I will give my support and hence the people's support to the previous emperor's highest born son, Saturninus, even though Saturninus is shown throughout this to be a rather violent, tempestuous, and above all, lustful boy. 
Titus even offers his own daughter Lavinia to Saturninus at Saturninus's urgings. Ah, but Bassianus? Bassianus decides that the perfect way to reveal that he is married to Lavinia is to grab Lavinia and run off. Don't stop to explain anything, just run off with the guy's daughter. And because of this, Titus goes on to kill two of his own sons who try to stop him from running off to kill Bassianus. Lots of sons dead at war, two more sons dead by his own hand. All for Rome. This will be a running theme if you can't tell. And Saturninus is about to kill Titus for this supposed betrayal of his own daughter humiliating him. But the goth queen, ah, goth queen, the best kind of queen, uh, the goth queen, Tamora, intercedes because even though she is conquered, she has now already wheedled her way into Saturninus's ear and is now his queen. Titus be a dumb boy. He certainly has a fatal flaw. Uh, would, do you think that it is dumbness or do you think it is excessive commitment to an ideal? I think it's also that, but I think he's also very out of touch. He he said her, said so himself that he's like been gone for like forty years at war. I think I maybe think... that's tallying it all up. Yeah. So being in the military for so long, any sign or show of mutiny of disobedience is a literal life or death sentence. So. Maybe he was still in, like, general mode when all of this was happening and is, like, not fully comprehending that maybe Saturninus is not a good boy. Even he seems to know that Saturninus is... He needs work. He's a fixer-upper. Like, he's, he's, he's already thrown his support behind Saturninus and he says, Tribunes, I thank you, and this suit I make, that you create our emperor's eldest son, Lord Saturnine whose virtues will, I hope, reflect on Rome as titans raise on earth and ripen justice in this commonwealth. So he's saying, I hope you, I, look, I, I understand that you're not good so far, but I hope you will get these virtues. And you know, in order to ripen justice, that implies there isn't really much justice already. Uh, so I hope that this will ripen in the future. He know. I, I feel that the only reason he's throwing support around Saturnine is because he is a person who desperately believes in the the traditional structure of his country's government. And so he says, "You are the eldest son." Therefore, I have to say that you should be the ruler, and I hope this will turn out for the best, and my faith in this country insists it will turn out for the best. And um, I find it so strange that, um, that he clearly acts like a child. Saturninus? And Titus kind of goes, no, 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 just give me a second. Like, I'll be right there. Like Saturninus. You're right that he acts like a child. He, he's... There's no ambiguity that he is a, a, the quintessential evil, effeminate, uh, volatile Roman emperor. He is yeah. far too eager. Like, he is the firstborn son. He has a pretty good legal right, and he can argue for that. But he is far yeah. too eager to bring out his swords and fight people. <laughs> like, the very first thing he does, let's open up, let me get to the start. Noble patricians, 
patrons of my right, defend the justice of my cause with arms. Those are the first lines in the play. And so on the nose. Like, literally, I put uh, in my notes, it's act one, scene one, on the nose beginnings. And even after Saturninus had tries to, uh, I think it's like a, when Titus comes, uh, let me try to find the line, where even when Titus is implying that, no, I'm going to support you, Saturninus, uh, I have the people behind me. Saturninus says, Romans, do me right. Patricians, draw your swords and sheathe them not till Saturninus be Rome's emperor. Andronicus, would thou worship to hell rather than rob me of the people's hearts? It's like, no, man, I'm trying to help you here. I, I, I'm giving you their hearts. Uh, and also, again, on the nose, Saturninus, Saturn, you know, the god of death. I'm sure it was a perfectly reasonably, you know, um, you know, respectable name, but, you know, naming him after Roman Hades? <coughs> on the nose. Very on the nose. And... Where's the kind of tit scene? Oh, there it is. Saturninus. Romans, do me right! Patricians, draw your swords and sheathe them not till Saturninus be Roman's emperor. Andronicus, would thou work shit to hell rather than rob me of the people's hearts? And Lucius is like, Proud Saturnite, interrupter of the good, that noble minded Titus means to thee. It's like, content, and Titus, content thee, prince, I will restore to thee the people's hearts and wean them from themselves. Wean them, makes like, oh, they're not, they don't know what they're talking about, uh, Saturninus, just, just let me convince them. You're good, we're all good here. I like that your Saturninus seems to be a cockney. I uh, well, I just figured. I just wanted. What is the closest thing I could get to a child? And the answer was Cockney. Apparently, I'm so mean. I'm so sorry. Uh, on the note of Saturninus being a real childish character, and I'm going to bring up a term that we have used in a surprising amount of our recent plays, which is that he seems to have a mummy doll. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> remember the other ones well what was margaret maybe was she also that where was the other ones there definitely were venus maybe uh, uh, no um it was um it was one of those plays but not margaret well margaret had that vibe but she was more amazonian it was um joan of arc but as in henry the sixth part one where joan of arc's gentle domination of the Dauphin of France is meant to show that, oh, the French are feminine, weak, that a woman is standing above them and dominating them. In this one, Saturninus is shown to be even more childish, even more erratic by the fact that Tamora, the goth queen, is already manipulating and dominating him. Like, Tamora essentially gets close to marrying him and does marry him. She says, and here... In sight of heaven, to Rome, I swear, if Saturnine advance the queen of Goths, she will a handmaid be to his desires, a loving nurse, a mother to his youth. Which... Uh, uh, awful. Awful. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> 
garbage. Oh my gosh. And how old do you think Saturnines is meant to be in this play? I would say at the latest 20, 28, 24, 25, just, just definitely still in his 20s. Because at least, because like, and I say like late teens, mid to late teens at the absolute earliest, mostly because then he would have regents. Surely he would have regents going, ah, sir, you're far too young to do this. Why is this accent coming out of my mouth? Whatever. Yeah, just too, too, too early. Too, you need to grow up first. We will, the adults will do the job first. I like the political imaginary that's coming out here, Sophie, where the Cockneys are the erratic rulers and the Russians are there to keep them moderate and in line. <laughs> Wasn't it right? <laughs> oh, no. My biases. Oh, God. This, this, is, this is how I get cancelled. <laughs> But back to, I, on the age of Saturninus, I think that it needs to be at least at the higher end of his, uh, his teen, at minimum the higher end of his teens, because uh, key to the plot is that his younger brother, Bassianus, is more moderate and more calm than Saturninus. Ah, so this is the first thing he says. So after... The first line from Saturninus where he says, get your swords and fight for my right. Bassianus says, to virtue consecrate, to justice, continence and nobility. But let desert in pure election shine. And Romans fight for freedom in your choice. So his brother, his older brother has said, get your swords and fight for my right. No, Bassianus is saying, no, we need an election here. In a play like this, is it any wonder that he dies first? Yeah. Well, no, technically, he's not the one that dies first. Oh, no, Titus kills some of his children. Yeah. Well, yeah, Titus, yeah. For a second, I was like, no, are you talking about Saturninus? No, actually, it is Titus, the, the main character who murders a few of his sons for... I was going to say shits and gigs, but... It was for, and I think it's, it's important to state this out, like, we, we can say that Saturninus is being a moron... I would say that perhaps we should view this play less as a realistic psychological portrait and more as a heightened uh, kind of world where uh, the themes are very strongly put, where Titus, yes, in real life, this person would be an objectively a moron. But this is, I think that the, the main theme here is that Titus is a patriot he is a he's a person, my country, right or wrong, I will fight exactly for my country. I will do anything for my country, even if it means destroying my own family. My family means less to me. I will sell my daughter, I will give my daughter to my, my emperor. Uh, I will kill my sons if they try to get in the way of my country. Uh, this, he is purely for his country. And this is his tragedy that halfway through he realizes that his country is worthless and that all his efforts have been worthless, and that therefore that's when he goes on his revenge spree. I do find it interesting that um, he refused the scepter at first, you know, or he just refuses because he's old, and it's just like, let me rest, please. Um, Isn't go that on. like the, the basic, uh, that's one of the things that, even if you want the thing, you have to push it away, and that is fundamentally the sign of a good king, 
which is someone who doesn't want to rule. They're not in it for the power. They really don't want the power. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is a very basic way of doing it. But he does it for for reasons which basically amount to, let me rest on my laurels. I've done, I'm, I've done great. I've peaked, TB. Um, and as soon as he says that, you know, things go to go to badness, go to hell. Okay, I will say um, on a character's note, I found it very fascinating that Titus just almost okayed Tamara's initiation. By that, I mean, like, there's no real sense of, wait a, wait a second, sir, I just murdered her son. She is a goth. She was an enemy. Clearly, this woman is going to destroy us all. Saturninus, what are you doing? I think that, uh, given his character, he would never even question. He would never dare question Saturnine as part of his uh, patriotism. I guess. I would say that, on another character note, I do find that this play still has some of Shakespeare's good ways of depicting the natural progression of thoughts. Although we say that, apparently someone suggests, I forget who, but they suggest that this first act was written by a collaborator called George Peel. So if it is George Peel, good on you. So Titus has just come back. He's come back from war and he's saying, Hail Rome, victorious in thy mourning weeds, low as the bark that hath discharged his fraught, returns with precious lading to the bay, from whence at first she weighed her anchorage, cometh Andronicus. Bound with laurel boughs to resalute his country with his tears, tears of true joy for his return to Rome, thou great defender of this capital, stand gracious to the rights that we intend, Romans of five and twenty valiant sons, half of the number King Theum had. Behold the poor remains alive and dead, these that survive, let Rome reward with love, these that I bring unto their latest home, with burial amongst their ancestor. Here Goths have given me leave to sheathe my sword, Titus unkind and careless of thine own, why sufferest thou thy sons, unburied yet, to hover on the dreadful shore of Styx, make way to lay them by their brethren? They greet in silence as the dead are wont and sleep in peace, slain in your country's wars, O sacred receptacle of my joys. So he, I would find here that, yes, he's coming back from war, he is victorious, but then there's a very natural movement to just grief of his children, which is just that, yes, we're victorious, but no, my, my children's dead bodies, my war-dead children's dead bodies, Get them a funeral right now. They need a funeral. They cannot linger too much longer on the sticks. Give them a proper burial right now. He can't continue with his patriotism right now. He said, no, get them, get them a burial. That is a good psychological move there. Yeah, no, I can agree with that. And yeah, and also I find this sort of also tempers what I was saying about him being pious, 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 uh, he, he doesn't even care about his family anymore. Uh, this shows he does, does somewhat care about his family. He does care about his family and their well-being. It's just that when push comes to shove, he will prioritize his nation over his family. Act 2. You 
thought you'd seen the villain. You thought Tamora was the villain, the goth queen mummy dumb, but no, the actual villain is racism. A black guy comes on stage, and this black guy, he is the villain of this. Adam, the villainous Moor, which is very much in keeping with the depictions of black-skinned people in Shakespeare's day. Uh, people argue about whether Othello is racist, is it not racist. No, Shakespeare was being the most racially progressive of any of his contemporaries, and even of himself, the most racially progressive in the play Othello. Uh, Aaron is pretty much the kind of person that uh, the Elizabethan white playwriting community thought that black people were, these villainous, violent, uh, godless people who come with their swords and their rape. <laughs> Not only is he an evil man, he is a moral vacuum that drags other people into his evil. We have on stage now Chiron and Demetrius, who are Tamora's sons, her goth sons. And they're arguing over, oh, who will woo Lavinia? Who will get her to commit adultery on her valid husband, Bassianus? To which Aaron comes in and convinces them both to not bother wooing and go straight to the uh, the taking, to the raping. And it takes him very little time to convince them. He says... It, hmm? it takes no convincing at all! I would I argue that it does take... He does sort of s- saddle up to it. it it's uh, unusual that he sort of tries to insinuate it. But anyway... We have then, we have Titus, the Emperor, and all the other people go out hunting. Ah, but Tamora and Bassianus, they wander off the beaten path, where Tamora, Chiron, Demetrius, they find Bassianus and Lavinia off the beaten path, and Chiron and Demetrius, at their mother's urging, go and murder Bassianus, and they pull away Lavinia to rape her. And then, Adam leads Titus's sons, Quintus and Martius, to the hole that that, uh, Bassianus's corpse has been tossed in. Quintus and Martius, they fall into the hole and they find the corpse, and then Saturninus and company find them and say, oh my god, these are the ones who have done the crime. And Tamora says, I found a letter from them. In this letter, they say they were going to kill Bassianus. And so, Quintius and Martius, they are taken away. Titus's sons, more of his sons, taken away to be executed for this horrid crime that Adam has framed them for. And at the end of this act, Lavinia is found dismembered by Titus's brother Marcus. She has no tongue, no hands, so there is no possible way she can tell anyone who her actual rapists were. Ah. <sighs> So I've been listening to Titus Andronicus on Audible um, through Archangel Shakespeare. Reading it is not as bad, but for sure, listening to it was was bad. It was so awful. As Roland Barthes said of the Marquis de Sade, why we can still read with pleasure the Marquis de Sade, on the page, shit does not smell. You're not wrong. Yeah. You're not wrong. Oh. Yeah. You tried to pull me up, sir. You tried to pull me up on how easy it was to persuade Chiron 
and Demetrius. And I will admit that they are awful people who don't require that much. I mean, if you can be convinced to rape someone, then you didn't ever need that much convincing. Uh, but I do feel that there's something odd here and that Aaron is... He's being unusually uh, suggestive and circumspect. He is slowly leading them up to the rape. Or let me find it. So first of all, Chiron Demetrius, they seem to start by wanting something at least a bit consensual. They want to convince uh, her to uh, Lavinia to uh, commit adultery on her actual husband, Bassianus. They seem to want something consensual. Ah, uh, but Aaron, he comes along and says that, oh, you silly boys, can you imagine that a chaste woman like that would ever commit adultery with her husband? To which, you know, at this point, he's not suggesting rape. At this point, he's just saying, oh, no, she's too good, too chaste. She would never do that. She's, he's, com she's compl he's complimenting her sexual chastity. No rape yet. Uh, but then, as it goes on, he says, uh, would you had hit it too? Then should not we be tired with this ado? Why, harky, harky. And are you such fools to square for this? Would it offend you then that both should speed? So, you know, stop fighting over her. Just imagine that, uh, just ask yourself, would you care if both of you managed to have her? No, still not mentioning rape yet. Still not mentioning rape. He just said, would you I mean, mind? Both? And, as soon as they say both, it's just like... Yeah, but he is sidling up. He is side then he says, for shame, uh, be friends and join for that you jart. His policy and stratagem must do that you affect. So policy and stratagem here saying, you know, you must be a bit cunning, but still a nice word for cunning. And so you must resolve that what you cannot, as you would achieve, you know, you can't. You would like to woo her, but you can't do it that way. You must perforce accomplish as you may. You know, do what it takes. Do anything it takes. Uh, take this of me. Lucrece was not more chaste than this Lavinia. So Lucrece, so already putting in their minds the rape of Lucrece. So it's not saying it outright, but he is putting it in their minds. A speedier course than lingering languishment must we peruse, what must we pursue, and I have found the path my lord's southern hunting is in hand. Ah, so there will the lovely Roman ladies troop, the forest walks are wide and spacious, and many unfrequented plots there are, fitted by kind for rape and villainy. So even now, he's already basically saying, let's go out and rape her. He is already, he's not even saying you will rape her, he's saying it is fitted by kind. The rape and villainy? Single you thither, then this dainty doe, and strike her home by force, if not by words. So even here, it's like, oh no, maybe you could get her by words. This way, honour at all, stand you in hope. Come, come, our empress with her sacred wits to villainy and vengeance consecrate. Will we acquaint with all what we intend, and she shall file our engines with advice, that you will not suffer you to square yourselves, but to your wishes height advance you both. So it's like, don't fight each other. Go and rape a woman. <laughs> so I do find it's interesting how he... Yes, these are... Chiron and Demetrius, they are immoral. They are monsters. They are people who don't take that much argument into being evil rapists. But they are people who you do need to slowly shift them into that role. And it's especially interesting that he is... 
when he speaks to Tamora, he is incredibly, let me find it. Hark, Tamora, the empress of my soul, which never hopes more heaven than rests in thee. This is the day of doom for Bassianus. His Philomel must lose her tongue today. Thy sons make pillage of her chastity and wash their hands in Bassianus's blood. So with her, he is, just goes and meet, now we're going to kill him and we're going to rape her. Glad that this was quite a short scene. Yeah. Um, for Act 2, 1, I wrote down Aaron the Evil plots. It also is quite, this act is quite um, good at establishing Aaron to be actually quite um, educated. He's very mean and cruel and quite evil, but he, it is so, in not in a goth barbaric way as one would expect, um, and, and by mean one as in the contemporary audience of the time, but, you know, he... Now climbeth Tamara Olympus' top, safe out of fortune shot, and sits aloft, secure of thunder's crack or lightning flash, advanced above, pale envy's threatening reach. You know, gallops the zodiac in his glistering coach. Glistering is a nice word. Like, he mentions Prometheus. He mentions Lucrece. Um, he later mentions, you know, other well-known characters of myth and legend that the audience might expect a more would not know of. Um, so already there is quite, you know, a contrast between Demetrius and Chiron versus Aaron. And also Demetrius says, why makes thou it so strange? She is a woman, therefore maybe wooed. She is a woman, therefore maybe one. And I'm just going, was that a Richard the Third? He Richard does. Shakespeare has used that line in Henry the Sixth, part one, uh, Henry, no, so Richard III, and now on this one, he likes going back to that one. Yeah, why? Why does he like that? She is Lavinia, therefore must be loved. And I'm just going, is that, is Richard III fresh enough in people's minds that using that quote lets people know that, oh yeah, no, Demetrius is not a good man. I think I think I read somewhere that that was a relatively common idiom at the time. Maybe I would like that more, preferably, because then at least you know, twisting an already existing idiom or phrase to your um, to your use to your cause versus. So I'm just going to let that motorcycle go past. Being self-referential and you know a little almost sounding a bit smug about it just makes me go, hmm, William, I think you're being a little self-indulgent there. Not as self-indulgent as his poems are. Yeah, that's true. Um, um, act two, scene two, I, I just wrote down a single scene that is meant to fill the audience with dread. Yeah, I do like that he's, this is very much a Seneca-inspired piece, but it is... And you can see certain parts of Seneca, like a Thyestes, uh, uh, so like, like in Thyestes, after Thyestes has unwittingly eaten his own children, he says that, oh, I, I am so happy, but for some reason I feel sad. Ah, oh, why am I sad? It's, but I have my, ch my children are alive and healthy and I'm reunited with my brother. So why am I so sad? Nothing can possibly be wrong. Uh, in this one, you also get something of that, where Titus says, the hunter's up. The, so this is after, I think this is, ah, so this is, uh, 
Chiron, Demetrius, they vowed to rape uh, Lavinia and Titus. Then now we cut to Titus and all the hunters. The hunters up, the morn is bright and grey, the fields are fragrant and the woods are green. Uncouple here and let us make our, bray, our bay and wake the emperor and his lovely bride. And yada yada yada. I have been troubled in my sleep this night, but dawning day new comfort hath inspired. Oh yes, life's good now. I feel nothing bad can happen now. I was a bit uncomfortable this morning, but no, nothing bad can happen now. Very Senecan. Yes. And I oh, also yeah. noticed something especially Senecan about this, which is that thing that Seneca will do, uh, especially in Thyestes, and this goes into the next act a bit, uh, where, oh no, it's actually all in this act, where Seneca will try to draw out the dramatic irony, and he will just try to draw out the revelation of evil so much that he can return to the same thing three times for its shock value. So there's first the part where the people are planning the evil, and this is, oh no, they're leading up to something awful, and that's the revelation. And then there will be the actual murder, the actual atrocity, and this event itself will be drawn out very long, and the victims will say, oh no, it's going to happen, oh no, and that's drawn out for shock value. And that's not enough for him. Then at the very end, you'll have people discovering the crime, and that will be drawn out for a very long period. And that's what happens here. So we have uh, Aaron, Chiron, and Demetrius. He's drawing it out to say we're going to rape them and kill uh, Bassianus. And then we have the actual uh, murder and rape scene where that's drawn out them just sort of teasing and taunting to Lavinia and Bassianus. And then we have Quintius, Martius, and even Marcus, them coming across the dead body of Bassianus and the rape Lavinia. And he draws that out. And what I find that Shakespeare does better than Seneca is that this all happens in a single act, whereas Seneca did one atrocity like this over a single play. So Shakespeare is really packing in an atrocity per act here. Yeah. Um... And because I use I use Spark Notes, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, the I believe the study guide was like, oh yeah, no, there's a lot of reviews about this that involve like you know, nine atrocities per act or something like that. Just a sh an absolute offensive number of murders and tragedies and all that jazz. It's like it's quite impressive very jam-packed it just keeps going it just never stops it's awful <laughs> ah full of awe you ain't you ain't wrong you ain't wrong any other um, comments that you want to make about this act? um act two scene three tamara my lovely aaron wherefore looks thou sad when everything doth make a gleeful boast birds chant melody on every bush the snake lies rolled in the cheerful sun. The green leaves quiver with the cooling wind and make a checkered shadow on the ground. That's actually like really lovely imagery, which just, you know, makes what happens next just that much more horrifying. Um, but yeah, but, and then she carries on. And after conflict such as was supposed, the wandering prince and Dido once enjoyed, 
when with a happy storm they were surprised and curtained with a council-keeping cave. We may, each wreathed in the other's arms, our pastimes done possess a golden slumber, while hounds and horns and sweet melodious birds be unto us as is a nurse's song of lullaby to bring her babe asleep. Yeah, so it is, yes, yeah, so a reference to the Aeneid. And it is one of those things where in Shakespeare's plays, characters will be unaware of just how much foreshadowing they're doing because Dido did die. Uh, yeah. She... yeah, so um, uh, the Wandering Prince uh, was technically the founder of Rome or, you know, decked up to be. Um, and he was told to hurry up and go and, you know, found Rome, please. And guilty and wretched, he immediately abandons Dido, who commits suicide. And Aeneas sails on until he finally reaches the mouth of the Tiber. And there are just a lot of women being killed because of men or dying because of men. And it's, it's just, uh, yeah, no, Tamara is also foreshadowing her own demise at the hands of Amor, basically. Um, yeah, sort of by proxy, she is. Uh, she's killed directly by. I think it's Lucius. Is either Titus or Lucius? Yeah, it's one of those. And then you know, this is the day of doom for Bas Bas uh, Basianus. His Philomel must lose her tongue today. Ah, thy sons make pillage of her chastity, and she doesn't. She doesn't find that horrifying, and. Um, Girl boss, she, she even begins by saying, Ask my sweet, more sweeter to me than life. Yep, yep. Um, and you know, while the myth has several variations, the general depiction is that Philomela, after being, you know, uh, sexually assaulted and mutilated by her sister's husband, uh, she obtains her revenge and is transformed into a nightingale after she tells her sister of the crime through a tapestry. And then the sister is like, oh, yeah, kills her son by the, the, the husband and boils him and serves him as a meal to her husband. The, and it's like the sex face. It's like, I have written for, for fuck, okay, I'm, just, I'm going to say it. It's, it because it's, it has to be said. For fuck's sake, after, for the first uh, fun fact, and then double fuck's sake, for the second fun fact of, you know, isn't it enough to just kill your children? Must you make feed them also to to your to the to the object of your revenge? It's that extra step. It's a hat on a hat. Like, I cannot stress okay, so like, have you deboned a chicken before, Michael? I and I ask this fully knowing. I, you have, are I, have, bone, I have boned a chick, eh? Uh, no, that, <laughs> that, is, that itself is actually not true. Uh, no, I have not. <laughs> I've, I have done neither. I have neither deboned a chicken nor have I boned a chick. <laughs> I hate you. But also, good comeback. Um, yeah, it's hard. Like, y- you have to get the, you have to twist the, um, the the limbs just right to get the knife between the muscles you have to snap the bones and it's hard enough to do it to a chicken that is the the size of your head doing that to a to two adult males takes a lot of determination 
just a single-minded cold fury. I, could, um, I guess, like, um, in the ancient days, you would have had big-ass cauldrons, like you would, you know, see in picture books of witches, just, you know, at least good and big enough to have, like, a crouching bath in, you know? So maybe all you had to do was, you know, drain the blood out of the human being and just dump the thing and simmer it for at least eight hours and let the meat fall off the bone. Like, I, I'm getting a little too deep into the mechanics. And making yourself hungry. No. 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 Should we actually talk a little bit about Act 2, Scene 4 specifically? The one where Marcus finds Lavinia? Marcus, yeah, the one in which Marcus finds Lavinia, because the, the stage direction is, is so disagreeable, first of all. Enter Demetrius and Chiron with Lavinia ravished. What in God's name does that look like? I, I for instance, uh, there are certain stage directions probably meant a lot to the people at the time. Like, apparently, for, like, they say, a woman comes on, comma, mad. And this just meant that her hair was undone. Uh, that her eyes were wise and her hair's undone. So maybe ravish means that, that her top button is undone and her hair's a bit messed up. Although with this thing, it's in my edition, it also says her hands cut off. Uh, I wonder how an Elizabethan would have done that. Did she just pull her sleeves over her hands? And it's... I should have said this at the start. Trigger warning. Trigger warning for Probably. Uh, just rape, it... uh, mutilation, cannibalism, all those things, all the good Yeah, stuff. just put, maybe put it, uh, edit that, that phrase in at the, at the start. <laughs> oh. Like, oh, Demetrius and Chiron taunt her, then leave, and then um, Uncle Marky, Uncle Marcus finds her and just, um, what's the word? Butters poetic? What's the phrase? I have no idea. Wax is poetical? Something. Yes, that one. That one. <laughs> have you been eating wax, Sophie? Have I you been, Have you been using butter to make your candles? Your house smells like a southern kitchen. Your romantic night in, just putting buttered candles on your bath. <laughs> Three. This is the time when Titus has had it up to here with Rome. He's finally going to go on his Kill Bill moment where that music starts playing. His two sons, Martius and Quintus, they have been framed for the death of Bassianus and the rape of Lavinia. They are dragged through Rome, and Saturninus has said, I'm not going to give them a trial. I know they're guilty. They're going to die. And Titus is begging and pleading, at the very least, for a fair trial, just to figure out if they are guilty. Please save them. Ah, but that's not enough. But then... Lavinia is brought in, Marcus brings Lavinia in, and she's defiled. She is mutilated and raped, and this is just too much for Titus. And then another act of cruelty, another thing that's fit to turn Titus into a madman, Aaron comes up, and he says, Titus, you know, the Emperor has told me that he will forgive everything, so long as one of you 
cuts off one of their hands and sends it to them. And Titus says, no, I'll cut off my hand, and he cuts off his hand. But uh, Aaron was lying, the emperor never asked for a severed hand, and so essentially what they've done is they've sent a severed hand to the emperor, which probably would creep him out a bit, and not really put them on their their side. So these three awful events have happened in a row, and now Titus is saying, hmm, I'm going to fight Rome, I will turn against Rome. And he goes and tells his son, Lucius, Lucius, go to the Goths, make them an army, and come back here to fight Rome. Did I leave anything out? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't have that many notes for this act. Uh, Yeah, act three is surprisingly short, despite it having, you know, it only has two scenes in it, and one of them is an absolute nothing scene. It's actually kind of surprising. Pretty much um, just emphasizing what happened in the previous one. Yeah, the first scene kind of offends, offends me just because, well, like, it, it kind of makes sense because this play is about Titus and it's about his tragedy. But, you know, uh, Titus has basically goes, Speak, Lavinia, what accursed hand hath made thee handless in thy father's sight? What fool hath added water to the sea, or brought a faggot to bright burning Troy? My grief was at the height before you camest. And um, all I can say is, excuse me? Because it's like, oh, look at how the hurt my daughter went through hurts me. This isn't about you, Titus. And except, you know, this story is his so it is uh yes as i said in the in an edited part of this i said that this is an early example of fridging yeah it's fundamentally about the the woman's suffering is just there to make the man move forward and i hate it 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 is uh yeah this is not a feminist play no. no um although i will say um Nice touch to just a little bit beforehand. Um, my heart's deep languor and my soul's sad tears. Let my tears staunch the earth's dry appetite. My son's sweet blood will make it shame and blush. And I'm just going, oh, one drinks blood, the other spews it. There are um, a few good lines from Titus in this one. You know, the, a lot of... <laughs> There are, as a lot of the early critics of this play said, there are master touches where they say, no, those master touches, those are the ones Shakespeare did. Nothing else in this play. But there are definitely parts that do feel to be Shakespeare's own. Like he says, uh, O earth, I will befriend thee more with rain that shall distill from these two ancient urns than youthful April shall with all his showers and summer's drought I'll drop upon thee still. In winter with warm tears I'll melt the snow and keep eternal springtime on thy face so thou refuse to drink my dear son's blood. You know, that's a good line. It is a very good line. And also, it's like Lucius comes on and says, O noble father, you lament in vain. The tribunes hear you not. No man is by. And you recount your sorrows to a stone. And Titus says, Ah, Lucius, for thy brothers let me plead. 
Grave tribunes, once more I entreat of you. My gracious lord, no tribune hears you speak. Why, tis no matter, man. If they did hear, they would not mark me. If they did mark, they would not pity me, and yet plead I must, and bootless unto them. Therefore I tell my sorrows to the stones, who, when they cannot answer my distress, yet in some sort they are better than the tribunes, for that they will not intercept my tale. For when I do weep, they humbly at my feet receive my tears and seem to weep with me. And that is a, it is a, it, that is a definitely a good line. It's like these, I cry because I must cry. These stones are better than Romans because they will not tell me to stop. And they cry with me because my tears fall upon the stone, making it look like they cry with me when I just cry alone. But the, cry, the tears are reflected to me. Like it's, it is quite evocative. It doesn't make it okay. And this is the moment where he does turn against Rome. He says, O oh, happy man, they have befriended thee. Why, foolish Lucius, dost thou not perceive that Rome is but a wilderness of tigers? Tigers must prey, and Rome affords no prey but me and mine. How happy art thou then from these devourers to be banished? I will also say in a previous um, act, Aaron describes Rome as full of ears, full of eyes, and, you know, sophisticated, you will know, your crime will be known if you do it in Rome, but if you do it in the woods where nature is blind and deaf and full of shadows, you can do whatever you want. And it's same, so adding tight, saying, you know, Rome is full of tigers, is full of beasts, it implies, at least from Titus, that Rome is now a blind and deaf place to justice. Yes, I, I, I do like that because I, later on I'm going to find ways to, uh, to tie Adam to Titus, make them the polar opposites of each other. Uh, but they, yes, uh, in, in the wilderness you can do evil, ah, but also in Rome you can do evil. Who is really the uncivilized? Hmm? Isn't there a little beast in all of us? Yeah. Do you find, I mean, this, uh, this entire act is just... Uh, I remember, I think it was in a Borges uh, essay where he was reviewing a movie and he said that there's an overdetermination of motivation where in order to, you know, make it, you say, the, the, the screenwriter to make it believable that this character would betray his nation, they not only give him political reason, but also they kill his wife. Uh, well, you know, you only need one of those reasons. In this one, it's like, oh, they're going to kill my sons. This is why I hate Rome. Oh, They've raped my daughter. This is why I hate Rome. Oh, they've cut off my arm. This is why I... He only needed one of those. Only one of those was necessary for to make the plot work. Well, he did kill his son first and for Rome, so that wasn't enough, apparently. Yeah, I, okay, so two out of three. Two out of three were necessary. <laughs> and say, like Aaron, he comes... It's the, the, the hand cutting off. It's a point... It is a pointlessly cruel act and it's just that he just cannot help himself he wants to hurt people there is a bit of a a weird monkey's paw um vibe to it because he does at the very start um going back to the you know oh my hurt daughter hurts me give me a sword i'll chop off my hands too for they have fought for rome and all in vain and they have nursed this woe in feeding life Tis well, Lavinia, that thou hast no hands, for hands to do Rome's service are but vain. Um, 
no, Lavinia, first of all, will not be glad for not having no hands. How dare you, sir? And second of all, you know, he, he literally says, I should just cut off my hands. And the monkey paw, monkey paw curled. And Aaron was like, hi. Speaking of that hand that you don't mind cutting off, the everyone's scrambling to go, no, take mine. Lucius, stay, father, for that noble hand of thine that hath thrown down so many enemies shall not be sent. My hand will serve the turn. My youth can better spare my blood than you, and therefore mine shall save my brother's life. And Marcus says no, and Titus says no, and Titus says fetch an axe. And the most awful, uh, it's just the dumbest line to Aaron Lend me thy, thy hand so I can give you mine. Good God, sir. And Aaron says, if that be called deceit, I will be honest. Mm. Sir. I do like, you know, it's, it's when another thing that seems like Shakespeare's doing is if we have a messenger who comes in and the messenger, like we've seen messengers in other plays, um, but, you know, the messenger comes in and says, Worthy Andronicus. So he's telling them that uh, the emperor has received your hand and doesn't care. Worthy Andronicus, ill art thou repaid. For that good hand thou sent the emperor. Here are the heads of thy two noble sons. And here's thy hand in scorn to thee sent back. Thy grief, their sports, thy resolution mocked. That woe is me to think upon, my, on, think upon thy woes. Now, all of this is this fairly conventional messenger stuff. The messenger is saying bad things have happened. Oh, horrible bad things. We found this in, Se- in Seneca, where the, the messenger is just a person who conveys an awful thing and as a member of humanity knows that it's awful. But this is where Shakespeare comes in. That woe is me to think upon thy woes more than remembrance of my father's death. So you have to bring this, this messenger. Now we bring in this messenger's own private life. This messenger has an in, not an entire personality, but there's that thing where Shakespeare will do where he'll give even these most minor characters just a tiny, tiny bit of backstory, a tiny bit of psychology. We brought him that this character is thinking about his own father's death. All I've written for that paragraph um, is, did the woe is me meme come from this damned play? <laughs> I, I, okay, for starters, I think that's a more regular um, uh, set phrase in English. And also, I like that you seem to think that an idiom or a set phrase is now a meme. It's a meme. Oh, woe is meme. Not the memes. Not the memes. The memes. Uh, That joke is a copyright nostalgia critic in his Wicker Man review. Oh, really? Oh, dear. Jeez, no. Let's not bring that travesty of an existence into this. I must say that joke was fairly good because throughout the entire review, he's trying to avoid just doing the not the bees thing. And it just ends with him, you know, having one of that, that Wicker Man thing put on his head as the memes all start flowing into the helmet and just him going, not the memes, not the memes. That is, in all of his work, that is a somewhat good joke. Okay. If you describe it like that, I can, I can sort of see it. I can sort of see it. I think we've said as much as we can about Act 3. Yeah, because Act 3, Scene 2 is just them having dinner and um, Marcus killing a fly. Um, And Titus like, why did you do that? What if I had a daughter? 
I would have had a father and mother that loved it. And Marcus just says, uh, uh, because it was a really big black fly, I, I just thought it looked suspiciously like the moor, and that's why I killed it. Oh, really? It was a black, ill-favoured fly, like to the Empress's moor. Therefore, I killed him. Terrible. And in, you know, to bring up the Julie Taymor version, the Julie Taymor version, she gives this line to the boy, to the youngest member, just to show, just to really emphasise that in this play, like, no good can come of this revenge. Because in this play, the boy, the next generation, the youngest of the next generation, is an absolutely sadistic little monster. Uh, <laughs> so giving that boy this line of uh, killing the fly with like a more, yeah, that doesn't make him. That doesn't make this seem like it's going to end well. <laughs> say it like a normal person. Act four. <laughs> Marcus and Lavinia, they find a way to communicate who were her wrongdoers. Uh, at first, they do a rather morbid version of charades, but then they find, oh no, you can use your, you can use your mouth and hold up this uh, stick just to draw in the sand who did this to you. But you, you wonder why they didn't think about that before. <laughs> but and also, you don't even need a stick. You have your feet. Have you never written things in your with your feet in the sand? Minkot. Ah! Shakespeare was trying not to give the foot fetishists in the audience anything to work on. Idiotas. Idiotas. Mondio. What language is that? Idiotas is probably either... Spanish or Italian, I don't know. Mondio is clearly French. I'm just bringing, I'm just, I'm just pulling out all the stops. The political imaginary is, uh, is, is growing broader. So the Italians, the Spanish, and the French, these are like the Coric voices who are <laughs> on the side as the Russians guide their Cockney king. <laughs> I, um, I'm going to have to desperately remember what I need to keep in the edit. Otherwise that line will just make no sense. Yes, good luck, good luck. But anyway, the boy is eager to take part in the vengeance, even threatening to rape Tamora, I think. Uh, <laughs> but the boy, but Andronicus says, no boy, you just take this message to the Empress's sons. And it's an obvious threat, this, uh, this, this message, but the, the sons are too stupid to understand. Uh, the Chiron and Demetrius are too stupid to understand the threat. Ah, but uh, the plot thickens because... Aaron and Tamora had a love child, and the love child is black, which means that this could be very hot water for everyone involved. But Aaron says, don't worry, I know a lower class family who have white skin and they have a white child, so I'll take their child and give them some money for it, and let's replace that child with the emperor. So the, the emperor is now double cuckolded. Once he had a black son, now he has a commoner's son. The two ways that you can make a Elizabethan person uncomfortable, not only is my son a moor, my son is actually a commoner. <laughs> but Titus et al. 
are on their way to the Emperor, and Titus is pretending to be insane. Quite like Hamlet will pretend to be insane, as well as like the Roman hero, the killer of monarchs, Brutus, the original Brutus of the uh, rape of Lucretia uh, phase of Roman history. Brutus pretended to be mad to get close to the king to kill him. Well, Titus is pretending to be mad. Saturninus gets Titus's messages, and now also the Goths are on Rome's doorstep, the Goths being led by Lucius, Titus's son, and also the Roman people are about to revolt. And Tamora says, Saturninus, let me deal with Titus. And that is how the act ends. It's a bit, this one is a bit more packed, don't you think? The whole the whole play is pretty packed. Like I genuinely, when I was listening to it, because they don't say you know Act One, Scene One, Act One, Scene Two, or whatever. They just read through it all the way. I thought Act One, Scene One was like three scenes, but it was not. And I didn't know that the banquet scene with the fly was one short scene. So. Um, yeah, no, it's so packed. It's very plot-heavy, and it's on occasion that you see the soliloquy-esque moments that not necessarily gloss over the tragedy, but sort of gilds it, you know? Like, gives a, gives a little nice frame to the absolute hellscape that is this play that still drips. Yes, going from certainly going from Seneca to this, Shakespeare has made it more punchy. Definitely more punchy. Yeah, I don't. Was the child really being cruel, or was he being, you know, just filled with childish bravado? I'd say that when it comes to this play, comparing this child in this play to all the other children in Shakespeare. All the other children in Shakespeare are these too innocent for this world, little angel gumdrops. I'd, so I'd say that the fact that this child is in any way acting evil like this, uh, you, you, that, that is a sign that this is, Shakespeare intends this child to be quite an evil little creature. <laughs> Like I mentioned, that he seems to threaten to... Like, for instance, the boy says, I say, my lord, that if I were a man, their mother's bedchamber should not be safe for these base bondmen to the yoke of rope. So he's saying, their mother's bed... I'd go in there. If I were a man, I would ravish their mother just as they ravished my sister. I thought he was just saying that he'd kill her in her sleep. I think Shakespeare is lacing a deeper thought there. (laughs) Okay, if you put it that way. Like, yes, yeah, so I, def- I definitely believe that this is one of those things where, you know, there, I think the term is a restoration fantasy, that if you put a good person, there's an evil person on the throne, we'll put a good person on the throne, and then everything will go well. Uh, arguably, Macbeth is like this, although in Macbeth, uh, it's dubious whether that is the case, that once Macbeth is gone, maybe goodness will prevail. In this one, it does seem to be suggesting that you know, get rid of, what was it again? Get rid of Saturninus. This world's not going to get better. The next generation, this young boy, he's evil. Um, Lucius, Lucius goes on to be emperor with the people's support. 
uh, it does turn out that he wanted to kill a child, uh, albeit Aaron's child, but no, he did want to kill a child, so probably not. He want an infant, actually, a baby. He wanted to kill a baby. So this is it is sort of warning us that no, this this country is not going to turn out well. Doesn't matter if you kill the bad guy in charge; you're going to get another not that good guy in charge. Hmm. I guess. I will say though, Aaron is a terrible person but he's actually kind of a good dad yes this is uh i i view him as being the opposite of titus so titus doesn't care about his family cares all about his country whereas aaron he doesn't care about anything other than his little child this is the only thing he cares about although i will say that this it does seem to manifest itself that the reason he cares about his child is almost a form of narcissism uh <laughs> where let me find uh, it, uh, he says, ah, so Wolf, Demetrius says, wilt thou betray thy noble mistress thus? And Aaron says, my mistress is my mistress, this myself. So it's a kind of narcissism that pushes him to love his own child. And I guess defiance as well, because um, is it in this scene that he mentions his soul? Um, or is it later? I- is this when he's being caught by Lucius and his company? I don't remember um, any line maybe. like that. Yeah, maybe. It's, okay, so I won't talk about it yet. But, you know, um, he he basically goes, there is nothing wrong with being dark-skinned. This boy is mine, and I will love him, and we are going to escape into the night. Yes, on that, someone said that that line where he says, um, this that speech of Aaron's is the first black power speech in all of literature. Oh <laughs> my god. Your white line walls, your alehouse painted signs, coal black is better than another hue, in that it scorns to bear another hue. For all the water in the ocean can never turn the swan's black legs to white, although she lave them hourly in the flood. Tell the em- So yes, we see saying that we are ourselves and black is black and black is powerful. What was that? I sent you that meme, Zobi, where that Sonic um, song that had that Malcolm X line sampled in it. Oh, where Malcolm yeah. X is saying, when somebody says the coffee is too black, what they mean is it's too strong. Why is that in a Sonic game? <laughs> too black, too strong, too black, uh, too strong. It's so bad! <laughs> Sonic! Wait, that, that, <laughs> it just feels so wrong. But anyway... I do find it interesting um, at the end, at the scene, basically, Nurse nurse gets murdered because she knows too much. A rather Tarantino-esque way is like that scene in Pulp Fiction where it's like, hey, Marvin, what do you... Oh, God, oh, no. Oh. Uh, it's just very, very quick. It's just like the Empress, the midwife, and yourself. Uh, two may keep counsel when the third's away. Go to the Empress and tell her I said this. And then he pulls the nurse up close, and then just he kills her. Uh, so that that is quite a good that's quite a good uh, theatrical moment. It is. It's actually a pretty great um, theatrical moment. Um, but... <laughs> he also says, "Weak, weak." So cries a pig, prepared to the spit. That I did not like. That I did not like at all. <laughs> that's very cruel of him. And Demetrius is like, "What means thou, Aaron? Wherefore didst thou this?" It's like, well, Lord Sir, tis deed of policy. Shall she live to betray this guilt of ours? A long-tongued babbling gossip? No, 
lords, no. And now be it known to you my full intent. Not far, one muli, mulai? I don't, I don't know how that's pronounced. Um, as mentioned, um, the white um, child that they can bring. It's like, hark ye, lords, ye see, I have given her physic, pointing to the nurse, whomst is very, very dead. Um, and it's like, you must needs bestow her funeral. The fields are near, and you are gallant grooms. This done, see that you take no longer days, but send the midwife presently to me. The midwife and the nurse well made away, then let the ladies tattle what they please. And it's like, Aaron, I see thou wilt not trust the heir with secrets. For the scare of Tamara, herself and hers, are highly bound to thee. So Demetrius and Chiron's like, oh my god, you're so cutthroat. And Demetrius is like, either manipulated into saying this, or decides out of a rain of cold sweat, says, thank you for your service, Aaron, for doing Tamara, our mother, the service of doing this. And Aaron's like, yes, that is the correct uh, interpretation. I will go now. Yes, we it will is... speak of this no more. Yes, it is. Uh, they do understand that they need him. That uh, he may be evil, he may be awful, he may have uh, has sex with their mother, uh, but it says, uh, but they do know that they need him. He is the only intelligent one there. I really is. It's it's very much a is Demetrius that excruciatingly dumb and goes, yeah, no, he totally did this for us, or Demetrius actually being clever enough to go, I do not want to be on this man's bad side. Mm. Yeah, I think he's meant to be a moron. They're all they they throughout this thing they are people who can be guided into almost anything. Yeah. But it's I, I do like the sense in this scene that Aaron, he's not taken by he knows that his child I, I, I get the sense that he does he's been preparing for this for like nine months. He knows that the child's gonna be black and he's already been preparing what he's going to do. That he's not at all like he, when when the nurse comes in and she starts saying, oh no, something terrible has happened, something terrible has happened. He's basic, like for instance, it says, uh, oh tell me, did you see Adam the Moor? Well, more or less, or narrow with it all. Here Aaron is, and what with Aaron now? Oh gentle Aaron, we are all undone, now help or woe betide thee evermore. Why, what a caterwauling thou keep, what dost thou wrap and fumble in thy arms, so yada yada. Ah, so then it says, ah, she is delivered, Lord, she is delivered. And Aaron says, to whom? So oh, he's obvious, he knows that the the Empress has been pregnant, and she means that the Empress has delivered a child. Like, but Aaron is, is being jokey here. Like, who has she been delivered to? Who, who has taken her somewhere? He is not at all flapped by this. He is... Uh, he, he says, no, this is my child, and I'm not going to let you hurt them, and I'm also not going to get um, panicky about this. Yeah. No, Aaron is, was just switched gears so quick that he clearly had the hand on the axle. <laughs> He's a anyway, very cunning guy. Let's the rest of the scenes of Act 4, because there is actually a little bit still more, ain't there? Uh, uh, do you have any comments on those last uh, scenes? Uh, Titus uh, decides to pretend to be mad, although the audience is not privy to this as of yet, which is actually a nice um, turn of events, um, considering just how bonkers he seemed at the dinner table about the big fruit fly and now he's shooting arrows with messages tied to them going hey jove 
nice little ruse. Um, the arrows end up in Saturninus's possession, and Saturninus and Tamara is like, let's mess with him a little more. He's in his madness. He's doing dumb things. Let's poke the bear a little more. That was such a dumb idea of them. But I it, it's that odd thing where, you know, it, it is a surprisingly long-running thing in Western literature. I shall pretend to be mad so that I can get closer to this um, powerful person. And at, at what, I mean, I, I know that perceptions of madness have changed throughout the years, but at what point did people think, oh no, I can get closer to people if I pretend to be insane and erratic? Yeah. I mean... Um, he has no right to send a clown to be killed. And this is on the note of the clown. Uh, I, th- I think Jonathan Bate, uh, in his work, How the Classics Made Shakespeare, said that this insertion of a clown here, you know, Shakespeare melds comedy and tragedy. Uh, this is sort of a, a precursor, an early germ version of, you know, King Lear and all those later parts where the high character is next to the low character of the clown and the deepest suffering is next to the vulgar comedy of the clown. And, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I would say that the clown here is not as well done as in the later versions, like in Antony and Cleopatra and in King Lear, but, you know, Shakespeare's experimenting. Hmm. It's not even a good joke. Titus just says, oh, you're from heaven. And Clown's like, from heaven? Alas, I never came there, God forbid. I should be so bold to press to heaven in my young days. Why, I'm going with my pigeons to the tribunal plebs to take up a matter of brawl betwixt my uncle and one of the Imperial's men. And Marcus is like, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing this. Take my letter to the emperor because you're a clown. And I'm mad, and I think you're a messenger from heaven to the emperor. And we don't even get to see the letter. It's like, a uh, clown. Yay, forsooth, and, and your mistership be imperial. Um, after he enters, and Tamara's like, oh, who are you? It's like, Tamara, Empress I am, but yonder sits the emperor. Clown, tis he. God and Saint Stephen give you good den. I have brought you a letter and a couple of pigeons here. Saturninus reads the letter. Go, take him away, and hang him presently. Clown, how much money must I have? Come, sirrah, he must be hanged. Hanged? But lady, then I have brought up a neck to a fair end. Exit, guarded. And that's it. That's not even funny. How is that funny? I mean, he thought he was going to get money and he's going to die. <laughs> he just wanted to fix a, a, a brawl between his uncle and an imperial guard. What about the uncle, huh? The, the, the fly gets all the sympathy in the world and then the clown gets nothing, nothing. Terrible. Act five. Lucius has come back with the Goths, the Gothic army. Once enemies, now friends. Friends to enemies. Archive of our own tag. Aaron is cornered by Lucius because he was scolding his crying child. And then, 
Aaron says, look, I will reveal everything to you. I will reveal the truth about Lavinia's rape and Bassianus's death if you promise to me upon all your gods that you will keep my little baby safe. And Lucius says, all right. And, but then Aaron, he gives his villain speech where he says, look, I'll admit to everything I've done and my only regrets in life are that I couldn't have done even more evil stuff. <laughs> and then uh, Aaron is hanged. Then we have the Emperor requests an audience with the Titus and his family, but Tamorda decides to go in and try to uh, manipulate Titus by... They, want, they think that Titus is mad, and so they go in dressed as vengeance, murder, and rape in this rather impressionistic mask scene, an allegorical mask scene where they say, oh... Titus, we will help you. And Titus is very much winking at the audience, saying, oh yes, I know it's them, but they don't know I know it's them. And then Tamora leaves, and uh, Titus says, everyone come in and see murder and rape, who are actually Chiron and Demetrius. Everyone, kill these two people. And Demetrius and Chiron, they're, they're dead now. And this, this is when the famous scene comes. He says, what are we going to do with them? Bake them into a pie. Get, make them a pie. And then, then we finally, we have the final uh, banquet scene where the pie is out there and Titus serves the emperor tomorrow a pie. And then he says to the emperor, he tells a story about an ancient story about a, a young daughter who was raped and that she went on to kill herself. And then Titus kills his own daughter. He kills Lavinia so that her name cannot be ashamed of the family anymore. So then Titus kills Tamora then I think it is Saturninus kills Titus, and then Lucius comes in and he kills Saturninus. And then after this bloodbath, Lucius has the people's support, and he becomes the emperor. Happily ever after. Anything uh, I left out? Of happily ever after, I do agree. It, it, this is certain, this is definitely the climax of this story. <laughs> he upped the ante. You know, too big. I would. Say we were mentioning the um, the pie before, and one thing I didn't notice before this point. Let me get up, up the pie scene, or the the part where they decide to put them into a pie, where it is. Ah, so it says, "You know, your mother means to feast with me and calls herself revenge and thinks me mad. Hark, villains! I will ground your bones to dust, and with your blood and it I'll make a paste, and of the paste a coffin I will rear, and make two pasties of your shameful heads, and bid the strumpet your unhallowed dam, like to the earth, swallow her own increase. This is a point, this is a subtle point that I didn't notice when I previously had read this play, which is that, yeah, so previously I thought they, he baked them into a pie. No, 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 no. There's an extra point there where he says, I will grind your bones to dust and with your blood and it, I'll make a paste of the paste, a coffin I will rear. So by coffin, he means a pastry case. He's not baking them into a pie. That pie, every single part of that pie, that is them. Their bones are making the pastry casing and then their meat is put inside of it. This pie is entirely them. It's not just putting their meat in. It is them. That is no part of it isn't cannibalism. Yep. Hannibal Lecter is just whistling with an impressed nod. Whew. Damn, I need to do that. 
Although I think Hannibal Lecter has a bit more taste. He cares about the kind of way you serve human flesh and what you serve it with. Just a pie. He's not a barbarian. I mean, pies are a perfectly reasonable way to consume meat. I would personally have them a little bit smaller, like Christmas pies. So any other comments on the pie scene, on the the pie? Or shall we move to uh, Aaron, to Aaron's famous speech? Yeah, let's go to Aaron's famous speech, since it is Act 5, Scene 1, in which it happens. Yes, it is apparently like he he was scolding his son, and then basically uh, he said, I will admit to everything, and Lucia says, Oh, you awful human being. Oh, God, you're awful. Uh, Do you you want to uh, claim, do you want to ask for forgiveness? And Aaron, no, no, no. Actually, actually, I have something else I'd like to do. (laughs) Uh, Let me find it. Ah, so... Uh, so Goth says, how can you say all this and never blush? Aaron says, I like a black dog, as the saying is. And Lucius says, art thou not sorry for these heinous deeds? And here's the famous speech. Aaron says, I, that I had not done a thousand more. Even now I curse the day, and yet I think few come within the compass of my curse wherein I did not some notorious ill, as kill a man or else devise his death, ravish a maid or plot the way to do it, accuse some innocent and forswear myself, set deadly enmity between two friends, make poor men's cattle, break their necks, set fire on barns and haystacks in the night, and bid the owners quench them with their tears. Oft have I digged up dead men from their graves, and set them upright at their dear friend's door, even when their sorrows almost was forgot, and on their skins, as on the bark of trees, have with my knife carved in Roman letters, let not your sorrow die, though I am I'm dead, but I have done a thousand dreadful things as willingly as one would kill a fly, and nothing grieves me heartily indeed, but that I cannot do ten thousand more. Metal. That is pretty metal. I was just going, is he just trying to get himself killed? It seems like he was trying to very get himself killed. I think he knows that he... He, everything is admitted. He knows he's going to die, so you know he may as well just tell them that I am not ashamed. I do not care. Do whatever you want with me. I am evil, and I spit on you. If there be devils, would I were a devil to live and burn in everlasting fire, so I might have your company in hell, but to torment you with my bitter tongue. Yeah. Yeah. And this is it. And bring down the devil, for he must not die so sweet a death as hanging presently. And was so. Why did he do that? <laughs> is this? Is, did he try? Was he trying to stay alive for his son? I don't get it. Aside from like, if he was allowed to die from there, that would have been super hot shit. Like, mmm, best villain of the decade. Ten out of ten would cosplay. Um, except I wouldn't, because that would be very, con- that would be actually very bad. Oh, no, I <laughs> oh, yes, yes, I can imagine. <laughs> oh, yes, you realised you just said you were going to black up, Sophie. At what point oh, did you no. realise you, you that? 
practically at the, as the say at the same time as it, as it came out of my mouth i uh, the a big oh no just bled into my skull but anyway um but yeah i can't i just can't find it anywhere but um he's with this in mind aaron specifically says something like i blacken my soul to match my skin or and um and yes here it is okay so it's oh it's a lot earlier than i thought i go andronicus and for thy hand look by and by to have thy sons with thee their heads i mean oh how this villainy doth fat me with the very thoughts of it let fools do good and fair men call for grace aaron will have his soul black like his face and he says he have he will have it black so you know he typically is capable of good good at every juncture chooses the darkest path to match his outward appearance and i would argue you have to know what is good to be able to do what is bad you know it's like oh you know what would be good this you know what would be worse this you know what would be the absolute worst this you have to have an imagination you have to have a moral compass and stare at it and go, what is the absolute opposite direction? <laughs> but yeah, Aaron did good. Aaron is a very good and fun character. Yes, it is, cer it is certainly like a, lots of people point out that Aaron is Shakespeare trying to do uh, Christopher Marlowe. Christopher Marlowe did... Uh, I forget, the Jew of Malta, the Jew of Malta. You know how this play is a bit racist? Uh, that play is definitely racist. That play is very, very racist. Uh, but uh, the Jew of Malta, there's also this, that kind of speech where Barabbas, the Jew, comes out and says, here are all the evil things I've done. But Shakespeare does it better. He does it much better. You, get, you really get the sort of metal of feeling of the evil from Aaron. Aaron's... I hate phrasing it this way, but Aaron's evil is tasty. Oh, yes. Delicious. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's, let's move on to Act 4, Scene 2. Act 5, Scene 2. Sorry, uh, Act 5, Scene 2. Ah, uh, yes. This the weird mask scene where Tamora says, you know how I can trick Titus? It's by pretending to be the embodiments of revenge, murder, and rape. That, that's going to fool him. I mean, it was excruciatingly dumb of her. And, and just like, how confident must you be in someone else's madness to pull that kind of, of stunt? I must say that it, it can only work in this play, which is already so heightened. I mean, yeah, you're, you're not, yeah, that is actually pretty correct. But, um, like, and also, I think Tamara is just really drunk on her own power right now because all of this started because Titus wronged her. All of this started because Tamara specifically said, how dare you make a queen cry and beg in the streets in front of of the masses and say no so she has basically been embodying revenge by 
ruining the man that killed her firstborn son, ruining the emperor that brought her low, just bringing her and also bringing her sons, who are common thugs, just to the heights of princely power. And she got away with, um, okay, she didn't really get away with, you know, giving birth to her lover's son and absconding him away since she did specifically say, kill him for me. Um, but it, she was like, she must have felt as a character that nothing could touch her. Yes, it, it, she didn't realize that the only people she can manipulate are man babies like Saturninus and her own children. And her own children. And there's a, there's a part which is, I mean, if we want to uh, make this more uh, psychologically consistent in the play, if we want to read that deeply into her psychology, uh, there is that we can perhaps argue that it wasn't the fact that her family was murdered, uh, that Titus uh, defeated her. It wasn't that that made her evil. There's an implication that she was always sort of a monster because because she is the goth queen. She started off as the goth queen. And yet when Lucius comes in with the goth army, the goth army says, um, ah, brave slip sprung from the great Andronicus, whose name was once our terror. Now our company's talking to Lucius, whose high exploits and honorable deeds in grateful Rome requite with foul contempt. Be bold in us. We'll follow where thou leads like stinging bees in hottest summer days, led by their master to the flowering field, and be avenged on cursed Tamora. So this goth is saying, cursed Tamora, that evil woman. Now, maybe this implies that when she was queen of the goths, she wasn't that good of a queen. She was maybe even then a cruel, evil queen, such as even the goths are saying, look, we're not conflicted about this. We want to kill her as much as you. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. So I guess, like, it was a bit of a step up for her to have her son murdered. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry for saying that. I should be, but I'm not. She's not but, real. <laughs> but she is, yeah, certainly that scene where, you know, she's pretending to be uh, revenge and stuff like that. Uh, Titus always throughout it going, oh, but you look very much like the Empress. Oh, but you look very much like her sons. Oh, but I know you aren't, so don't worry. Then he turns to the audience and he winks, and then he turns back to them. That happens a lot, and she is very confident that, oh, no, no one's seen through me. Which, again, is kind of why I want to think she is really drunk on her own power right now, because she is known to be at least, you know, mentally competent. She has her faculties about her. Marcus, my brother, to sad Titus calls, go, gentle Marcus, to thy nephew, Lucius, thou shalt inquire him about among the Goths, yada, yada, yada. Um, no idea where Tamara is, um, and Tamara and her two sons are on stage while Titus and Marcus are talking to each other. And it's like, now will I hence about thy business and take my ministers along with me? And Titus is like, nay, nay, let rape and murder stay with me, or else I'll call my brother back again and cleave to no revenge but Lucius. And Tamara's like, what say you, boys? Will you bide with him whilst I go tell my lord the emperor how I have governed our determined jest? Yield to his humour, smooth and speaking fair. Tarry with him till I turn again. Demetrius, madam, depart at pleasure. Leave us here. Farewell, Andronicus. Revenge now goes to lay a complot to betray thy foes. 
And I know that Austin, sweet revenge for worlds. Ah, how confident must you be to leave your two sons behind when she knows other, in theory, sane men are in the same house? They aren't insane. They will go, surely, Titus. Mm, this isn't this isn't right. You know this, right? Titus, please. Please, Titus. And but no, no. She's like, yeah, it'll be fine. This is fine. The confidence, the nerve, the gall. Yes, it is certain if we're going to read this psychologically, she is certainly uh that kind of person who has so much power that they've sort of let their critical thinking go to rot. <laughs> Just incredibly stupid. Uh, I do feel that with her, we miss Shakespeare missed a trick because, you know, the, the, the ending part where Titus comes out, gives them the pie, and then he reveals that in this pie is, are your children. Tamora doesn't really get any lines after that. That she is, uh, he reveals it and then he kills her. I felt that Shakespeare could have given her like maybe one short monologue just to say, "Oh no, how awful that I've eaten my children." Something like that. Yeah, in um, the Archangel podcast, not podcast, um, reading, she gets a really nice, convincing wretch. Yes, it's one you do need. You need to insert the uh, the reaction around the lines, yes. But yeah, you are right. Like, n- not having a single, oh, woe is I, <laughs> meme. I will insist it's a meme. <laughs> um, of her basically, you know, just, just howling at the loss of her sons and the horror of eating them. It's a, it's, it was a missed opportunity. That end. It is the ending is almost the uh, the parody of. How, I mean, uh, I don't believe Shakespeare intended this as a comedy or a parody, but it's almost a parody of how these tragedies tend to end where everyone dies. Whereas, like, I'll kill you, you kill me, he kills you, everyone's dead. I do not disagree. It is a very <laughs> and it just happens so fast. It just happens so fast, and also. Uh... Lavinia. Okay, so I still can't remember the 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 word that I would that was plaguing me. Not not authorial intent. Not audacity. Not the right to choose. The right to like consent, voluntariness, agency. Uh, agency, agency. I knew it was an A word. Yes, yeah. So she has agency potentially in when um, Chiron and Demetrius is murdered. Come, come, Lavinia, look, thy foes are bound, sirs. Stop their mouths, let them not speak to me, but let them hear what fearful words I utter. O villains, Chiron and Demetrius, here stands the spring, whom you have stained with mud this goodly summer with your winter mixed. You killed her husband, and for that vile fault, two of her brothers were condemned to death. My hand cut off and made a merry jest. Both her sweet hands, her tongue, and what more dear than hands or tongue, her spotless chastity, which I disagree with, Inhuman traitors, you constrained and forced. What would you say if I should let you speak? Villains, for shame, you could not beg for grace. Da 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 da. Whilst that Lavinia tween her stumps 
doth hold the basin that receives your guilty blood. You know your mother means to feast with me and calls herself revenge and thinks me mad. Hark, villains, I will grind your bones to dust and blood will make a face. Fee, fi, fo, fum. Um, and worse than progny, I will be revenged and now prepare your throats. Lavinia, come receive the blood. And when that they are dead, let me go grind their bones to powder small and thin. Hateful liquid. So she was part of that revenge and good on her. 10 out of 10. But there's no conversation afterwards of Titus going, Lavinia, now that we've done this, are you okay? Are we okay? And Lavinia might have had, you know, scrolled through pages and maybe pointed at Hecuba, um, who goes mad and um, kills someone and maybe in grief or you know shame kills herself i genuinely can't remember how hikuga died and i am not in the mood to google it up but like at least if there had been a conversation of of a pantomime of going that of lavinia just like you know saying or impressing upon her father that you know what she doesn't like being alive anymore and um, she has done a thing that is beyond human, moral, Roman comprehension. And she would like to not be alive now anymore, please. Like, I wish that had been the case. Because, you know, um, Titus has starts to have a conversation with Saturninus about, was it like Titus? And if your highness knew my heart, you were my lord. Me this. Was it well done of rash Virginius to slay his daughter with his own right hand because she was enforced, stained, and deflowered? And Saturninus says, It was, Andronicus. Your reason, my lord, because the girl should not survive her shame and by her presence still renew his sorrows. A reason mighty strong and effectual, a pattern, precedent, and lively warrant for me, most wretched, to perform the like. Die, die, Lavinia, and thy shame with thee. And with thy shame, thy father's sorrow die. How dare you, William? Genuinely, how dare you? And on the note of Hecuba, apparently, after the fall of Troy, she was made a slave. And then she was turned into a dog. And then she drowned herself. At least Hecuba got a choice in that. Like, ah... It was so unnecessary. How genuinely dare you, William? Let Lavinia have a choice in the matter. And we will never know. We will never know. And it offends me. Unless I write fanfiction about it. Ugh. Will you? No. Well, you have five months until we uh, post this, so that's enough time. <laughs> Now what we do at the end of this, we go around the panel, just the two of us, and ask ourselves, Sophie, what was one thing that you didn't like about this play? I think I can guess. Uh, I guess technically everything is not a correct uh, answer. Because, you know, Aaron was a delicious villain. Um, <sighs> Lavinia. 
it's everything about it is just so so tragic and unnecessary and awful and i hated it <laughs> that's what i do i have to say the same thing uh lavinia is very much she is the only good character morally good character in the play and that is purely so she can be brutalized uh and she is other than that her character is not that interesting i mean like you will argue that like she's not you know the paragon of virtue and perfection because um i there is one part in in my notes at the very start um that says oh wow Lavinia's a white supremacist bitch. Because, yeah, when Tamara, right before the travesty happens, um, he, um, when Bassianus and Tamara find, uh, no, no, Bassianus and Lavinia find Tamara, I'm assuming, you know, in a state of undress, considering Aaron has already left the scene, um, they basically slut shame her. For um for being embraced by the Moor, and um which on the one hand yeah she is a married lady, um and therefore she really shouldn't be you know cheating on on her imperial husband especially considering um it's through him that she even is treated well and is having a semi good time being alive, um but yeah Tam- even Tamara's like I don't deserve this. And then um, Bassianus gets murdered and Lavinia goes through what she goes through. And I'm not, obviously, I'm not saying, yeah, the rest of the play because of that one scene. Um, But, yeah, no, it is very much Lavinia, aside from that one scene that I'm not a huge fan of, as you say, was a paragon of good, only good, so she could be brutalized. And now for what we like. Yeah, Aaron. Aaron was Aaron was great. Exquisitely cruel. Would make a perfect Disney villain. Yeah, apart from a few, a few things. Apart, apart from a few things, but you know the the sheer sassy revelling in their own cruelty is a very classic Disney villain vibe. Like, they like being evil. And Aaron likes being evil. And good on him. Hope he burns in hell, but good on him regardless. Yes, my, the thing I like about this play is, I, I've stated it before, what I like is that after reading Seneca, this does come out. It's, it, it, is, it is genuinely like people who watch Tarantino films and they think, you know what, let's go and watch some of the 1970s films he's referencing here. And you watch these Grindhouse movies and they are awful. Those, there's nothing happens in those movies. There's one big violent thing at the end, but otherwise those are just terrible things. I'm not going to say Seneca is that bad, but Seneca is one atrocity and then 50 pages surrounding it of people talking and going on and on and on and on, saying the same thing. This, Titus Andronicus, this is the Tarantino version of Seneca. It is event after event after event, atrocity on, in every act. It is far more modern, far more punchy uh, than what Shakespeare was drawing from. Ah, <sighs> It's well written. 
still a crime against my mind. That was Shakespeare and Pals, looking at Titus Andronicus. Next time, Love's Labour's Lost. Now, I haven't actually ever read that or seen any productions of Love, Labour's Lost, but I'm going to take a very, uh, I'm going to make the assumption, make the leap, that maybe not as many trigger warnings for that one. Not as many trigger warnings for what I think is a love comedy about a bunch of uh, layabout college students, I think. I might be getting those details wrong. But, you know, if you skip this one, maybe... I don't know why you listen to the end of this if you skip this one, but, you know, let's get ready for that one. Love, labor's Love's Labour's Lost. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Pound. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from museopen.org. Thank you for listening.